Welcome to Books at Work, the best and most useful bits of business books. I'm Anna Hughes and my professional purpose is to help people love their work. The premise here is loving your work um, and we should be able to love our work. Um, And so if the job we're doing makes sense to us um, and we can use our best skills and abilities in that job, then we're going to be playing to our strengths. That's the voice of Dr. Karen Morley, author of Flex Ability, How High Achievers Beat Burnout and Find Freedom in an Overworked World. Congratulations to Sandy Rademeyer, who was the winner of our last book, Experiencing Design. Remember to go into the draw for the free book. Please just let me know what you think of this episode or follow Books at Work on Instagram. So on to our speed read of flexibility. Karen plays on the words flex and ability to try to capture what this book is about. She says flexibility as we know it is how organisations grant people freedoms in their work hours and locations. Her view is that flexibility is how you operate in that demanding work system. So our ability to focus on why and how we work rather than just where and when we work. This really is a post-pandemic book. Karen says overwork is here to stay and flexible work has blurred the boundaries between our personal and professional lives. And this is all about how do we take back control, deal with the demands of work and have greater freedoms. At the heart of the flexibility book is the need to focus on what matters. And to do that, we need to know what matters, do what matters and influence what matters. How do we work all this out? Well, working out what matters revolves around reducing stresses at work. Interestingly, Karen cites research that shows the changed way of working from COVID has been the greatest cause of stress for 55% of people. This is because we're having to balance working with technology, blurred boundaries, time management issues, and worrying about the future. Knowing what matters is also about knowing your purpose and living it, and being psychologically flexible. And this bit is all about how we respond to things, how we make sense of them, and how this impacts on our emotions and the choices we make. When we know this, we can start being more purposeful about how we manage our attention. We can manage our thoughts and reduce the amount of unhelpful thinking. This episode on flexibility is going to focus on the component doing what matters. I'm following Karen's process of focusing on one thing and getting that done. So if we're doing what matters, we can work fewer hours, get more done and love our work. Now that's music to my ears. Karen advocates for a strong structure at work based on organising, prioritising and digitising. Our conversation together shortly discusses these things. Flexibility also encourages us to stop the meeting madness. How do we do that? Well, question the purpose, focus and duration of all meetings. Stop meetings from becoming a time sink by having clear agendas, agreed frequency and cadence for the meetings and focus on the meetings that matter most, like the one-on-one check-ins and the team check-ins if you're a leader. So these are just a few of the bits of flexibility. We're going to talk to Karen now in more detail and focus on the practical things to try at work to focus on that component of doing what matters. So delighted to have Karen Morley and her book Flexibility on the line now to flesh out our speed read. Hi Karen, how are you going? 
Uh, I'm very well, thanks, Anna. Lovely to be here. Well, thank you so much. And we always start the podcast with a question of where in the world are you and what's the view out your window today? Hmm. I am in Melbourne, Australia. Um, and the view out of my window is one of sunshine. I can see through some quite large windows, uh, but I can see an air conditioning unit uh, and a few tables and chairs. So it's not absolutely beautiful, but the great thing is the, the sunshine. Brilliant. And you've got that air conditioning for that Melbourne heat as well. Um, mm. So keen to jump right into uh, the chunky bits of the book. And the section that I was really keen to focus on was the one about do what matters. Um, so, yeah, really keen to focus on that. And you talk in there about three bits, structure, focus and habits. So was keen to talk about work structure and the three elements that you talk about to create create a strong work structure. But maybe before we dig into that, why does work structure matter so much when we're talking about flexibility and uh, managing our workloads? Yeah, um, I think it's an important question. And as I was putting the book together, this was actually the last chapter that I wrote. And in a sense, I thought it was self-evident. Um, you know, organising yourself. I talk about, if you like, your job and what it looks like. I talk about meetings and making priorities, for example. And in a sense, I thought that probably was self-evident. But the more conversations I had and the more I thought of how work was changing in response to remote working arrangements, the more I thought it was important. And I've got to say, at the moment in the coaching conversations I'm having with my clients, this is... A really important focus. So a lot of it is fairly self-evident, but it's actually really hard to do. And so when I was thinking about what would make it easier, um, I thought about this structure around organise, prioritise and then digitise. Um, and again, the digitise piece was going to be the big part of the chapter. But it ended up, in a sense, being the smaller part of the chapter because really focusing on what am I here to do and getting those basics right means that you can then focus, you know, on your purpose, you can focus on the work that needs to be done that's nice and clear and then you put the systems and processes into place to make it easy to get the work done. The easier it is to get the work done, the more flexible you can be. So you said that that was hard, the structure stuff was hard for people. Why is that? What, 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 what's behind that? I think it goes to the core of the book and the focus on overwork. Um, so there, I think there are some myths about what organisations are like. I think everybody thinks that organisations, all organisations, um, are really well structured and that they operate along quite logical and sensible sorts of um, lines. But from my work prior to this book on diversity and inclusion and trying to think about what made flexible work so hard to now thinking about why is it hard post-pandemic when we're all doing it. Um, and I'm really thinking about the mindsets that some top organisational leaders have about work and have about organisation. There is just an expectation to overwork. In the conversations I'm having with people, you know, diaries are booked out continuously, meetings are booked over other meetings, and then they're saying, but I don't know why I go to these meetings. Well, hang on, what's going on there? And there is this drive to be present, 
even if you're remote, the drive to always be on, the drive to be visible, um, and the expectation from a lot of organisations that you do what it takes to get work done, regardless of whether it sort of makes sense to do it or not. We're doing it in ways that, that are effective or not. So if we look at that, the three things that you talk about when we're looking at our work structure to make sure that we've, we're doing what matters, the first thing is around organising. And you talk about organising your work to play to your strengths. And I really liked this concept. So keen to dive into that a little bit more. What do you mean by that? And, and how, how, what, 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 what might that look like for someone? And again, if um, the premise here is loving your work, um, and we should be able to love our work. Um, and so if the job we're doing makes sense to us um, and we can use our best skills and abilities in that job, then we're going to be playing to our strengths. And I think the technique that I talk about most and have used for quite a number of years, um, again, in coaching, is this idea of job crafting. And so this is to say that, you know, a job isn't just a few dot points or a long description uh, in black and white on a piece of paper that the organisation has given you at some point in time. Um, a, a job description is something that you can work with to focus on your strengths, your motivations and passions. And the more that you can see those things reflected in the work that you do and the more control you feel over your work so that you can do those things, you know, then the, the better the person fit you feel um, into the organisation or the person organisation fit you feel. And that's really motivating. So when you think about job crafting, it's not about inventing the job. It's not about not doing the things that you're expected to do, but it is about you're really crafting, shaping the work to make sense for your strengths and capabilities and passion. How, how do you do that, first of all, as a leader and then as a, a member of a team? I think leaders have a really great opportunity to actually foster this within their teams. Um, so for a leader, um, it's really thinking about uh, several things. Um, there's a wonderful Harvard Business Review case study uh, that puts all of this together and gives a little map. And I, I work through that in the book. But firstly, you focus on the work tasks. You know, are you doing the things that you're supposed to be doing? How much time do you spend on different groups of tasks? Um, and is there an opportunity to expand or diminish the scope of tasks, maybe to get better work done or to better suit you um, and your skills and abilities? Uh, and the second focus is around relationships. And I use the example in the book of, of a leader who, you know, saw himself as being um, a very good mentor and wanted to mentor the younger and uh, newer people in the team, but he just wasn't getting the chance to do that. So what he did, in a sense, was give himself permission to spend more time doing that by crafting in that relationship and some accountability around mentoring for, the, for those particular individuals. That went into his jo job description. Um, and there's also the opportunity to share work around. So if you're doing it in your team and someone's particularly good at something and wants to further develop that capability, you could bulk that up. And then others have the time and the opportunity to do some different things. Um, and then finally, I think changing perceptions and reframing your job. One of the things I hear a lot 
from leaders is about not having enough time to do the strategic work, being too caught up in the day-to-day. So really shifting the way you perceive the job and the way you write about it in the job description can make sense. So it does a few things. It makes it much clearer. It gives you permission to do these things in a particular way with a particular emphasis, focus, um, and, and it puts it in your language and plays to your strengths and capabilities. Um, I will often say with people who are looking to uh, you know, perhaps advance in their careers, gain a promotion, that what they do is to look at their job description and craft it based on the job they aspire to have and even use the language of you know, another job description um, or even just thinking about what do I need to be doing in the job that I aspire to have and then looking at how that might be brought into the existing role mapping it out, looking at how much time it takes, does it make sense, is there anything that's sacrificed. One of the things I do say in the book and that I highly recommend to everyone is that there's a conversation with their line manager about what they're doing and what it looks like. So that permission giving is there. But when you have that choice, when you make choices about the work that you do and you have that sense of agency, it just gives you a much stronger feeling of effectiveness um, um, and autonomy. And we know that autonomy is a very big factor uh, in work satisfaction. You know that also from pandemics and shutdowns, lockdowns. <laughs> so I, when I was looking at the job crafting concept, I was thinking, oh, well, you'd have to have an organisation that was open to that. You'd have to have a manager who was open to you doing that and then I also thought well actually that whole idea of agency and taking control of your job and your tasks that's so incredibly empowering and in a way it kind of doesn't matter (laughs) if your manager doesn't uh well you know if you do that independent of your manager because it's it's helping you be more effective as a leader Mm. and yeah I don't know whether that makes sense (laughs) Yeah, look, I think it's great if in work cultures, uh, managers and leaders can give people permission to do this. I think some of the good leaders just do this um, intuitively. Um, The research around this and around job crafting does show that people who are quite successful, they're real high achievers and quite motivated to do well, will often craft their job too. So again, they don't necessarily have the title and they don't know, if you like, what it is that they're doing, but they're exercising that degree of autonomy over the work that they do. And in some ways, it's the technique is probably more beneficial for those people who perhaps don't take that initiative, um, who don't know how to do this, don't do it off their own bat to be supported to do that. Yeah, and I think that, that helping your team do the job crafting as well. There's, there seems quite a bit of power in that as well. So why do you think the job crafting is, is so powerful? I think it is powerful because of that sense of autonomy, the sense of control I have over the work that I do. That gives me a sense of confidence in what I'm doing. And it also helps me to create a really positive story about the connection between myself and the work that I do. And going back to those three important criteria for job 
crafting, which is that what I'm looking for is an opportunity to play to my strengths, passions and motivations, if you like, they're baked into the work that I'm doing. Um, and if I continue to kind of review what I'm doing and um, compare that with my job description, I, I keep being reminded of that fit and that connection and that, that feeling of alignment, I suppose. And I can be optimistic that I can be my best self and I can do my best work in this job that I have. Rightio. So we're... we're organizing our jobs. Um, the next thing is around prioritization and um, getting on top of that whirlwind of too much to do and not enough time. I think lots of people relate to that. Ha, ha, what, what, are you, what is your advice or some techniques around that prioritization and how we apply them? One of the simple techniques that I recommend um, is the one that's called the four disciplines of execution. Um, and they, in fact, talk about this whirlwind metaphor, which resonates very strongly. Although I must say that last week I had someone tell me that it felt like a hurricane. So they thought that the whirlwind metaphor perhaps wasn't as apt as it used to be. But we understand that being just so caught up in too many things. The four disciplines is nice because it's a really simple technique that's based on, you know, what is the one wildly important thing that I need to do right now? It doesn't say the other things don't need to happen, but there will be something that should get the majority of my attention. There's something that is really important that if I do it now will perhaps have a flow-on effect to other work, but it will also, by focusing on it, allow me to actually do it, to get it done. So getting that one goal to focus on is the first piece. Then the second piece, which I think is probably the most important piece, is to um, identify the lead measures for that particular activity. We are so caught up in lag measures, you know, and lag measures mean, yeah, we're getting measurement and they are important, but we can't see along the way whether we're going in the right direction, whether what we're doing is having the effect that we do. Um, and so identifying what it is that we can be watching so that we can make sure that we're going to get the outcome that we're seeking our task, our wildly important goal will be, um, will be achieved. Um, and so that's things like instead of looking at the number of injuries, for example, you might be looking at, you know, people wearing hard hats or you might be looking at particular safety behaviours that we know prevent um, um, accidents in the workplace, for example. Then it's keeping a compelling scorecard. Now, this is a little bit harder in a remote world, um, but we all have intranets and we all have teams and various other ways of communicating remotely. So having a simple scorecard that you can put on a page that's got the goal that um, has everybody's contribution to it. So we all know what it is we need to do to make sure that the goal is going to be achieved and has the measures. We might meet daily for five minutes to tick off progress because that's the nature of the goal. Or we might meet, say, weekly or fortnightly because it's a different kind of goal. But what we're doing, we've got a, you know, a regular, as we say, the fourth part, cadence of accountability. Um, we've got the scorecard, we know what we're focusing on, we've got ways of tangibly seeing what our progress is, and then we've got this cadence. We're meeting regularly, we're reviewing regularly, and it's not a, a blame thing if we're not on track, but if you've got the measures set up right and the scorecard set up right, it's possible just 
you know, snap. We can look at that. We can see whether we're on track or not. Then we finish the meeting. So, you know, it might be two minutes. It might be 10. It might be 15. Uh, but we're not taking up a lot of time because we've got the data that we need. So why do those things work so well together to help prioritise what we're doing and focusing on? I think one of the reasons that they work together is that it's a simple formula. When you look at uh, work in organisations, apart from job descriptions, we've got strategies, we've often got business plans, we've got uh, programs of improvement, for example. There's a whole lot of stuff going on in organisations. And let's say maybe it even needs to, but it creates a lot of uh, noise and that is the whirlwind that people experience. So I think what this says is... Um, if you take something out just on its own, give it a little bit of simple but priority treatment, you can get it done and you can improve that. Um, and I think that um, with, with the people that I speak with, a lot of them are instituting the process in a range of different areas. And I think that's great. So they're bringing a different kind of discipline. So let's get the accountability right for this particular task. Let's get the measures right and let's make sure we've got lead measures on these things. So it's changing their practices more broadly. But what we're doing here, this highlighting of one thing to focus on increases the chances that we'll actually accomplish it. Hmm, nice. Now the other piece of the puzzle is digitising and digitising processes to support what you're trying to achieve. Um, can you tell us about that and what recommendations you have for that, particularly in this pandemic remote world? Yeah, uh, again, I, I thought that there might be a lot of really new stuff that we could create here um, that would be helpful here. But I think the key message that I would say about digitising work is not to overcomplicate it. I think the biggest mistake that leaders are making right now is setting up and encouraging, perpetuating Zoom meetings all day. So many people are exhausted by it. Look, I don't think they're exhausted by Zoom meetings. I don't think it's Zoom fatigue. I think it's inadequate meeting management some poor practices around people's time. A lot of individual contributors are spending all day in Zoom meetings. Now, an individual contributor needs time on their own to do their work. They can't do that when they're in a Zoom meeting. So I think what, what we've done is kind of thrown digital and the kind of Zoom or Teams, the video conferencing at everything. Um, and I think rather than that, we need to be looking at um, you know, digital processes that suit the outcome that we want to achieve. I do think it's a, uh, important to, to ensure that people aren't spending all of their day at the screen, but that's really hard because even if they're not in video conferencing, they're using digital documents. Um, but it does change the physical energy that you need to use um, if you're working on a document on your own or if you're doing different different things with digital um, um uh, methods rather than just constant uh, video conferencing. And I mean, that does, I think it does connect a lot back into the other thing that I talk about in terms of meetings, which everybody's talking about meetings and how dreadful they are. But I think it's we've mixed 
up with confused digital with video conferencing and that is actually encouraging and perpetuating a lot of really poor meeting practices. Um, so instead, the recommendation um, from me is to think about how did you previously communicate with people? When you weren't doing much remote work at all, how were you communicating with people? But what was the, the um, function of the communication? We've lost a lot of the incidental interaction We've lost quite a bit of the personal. With everybody so annoyed by long you know, days full of Zoom meetings, it cuts out some of that lovely social interaction as well. So for leaders, I think it's coming back to first principles. What do we need to do? What kind of work do we need to do? What's the work we need to do together? What's the work that we actually need to have a video connection through? Uh, and really refining what they're doing rather than using one technique for doing everything. So you talk about um, prime, pause and close. Um, mm. Could you just cover off pause and if we could close with close? Because I, I did that really appeal to me. So what, what's the pause piece in your good daily routine? Yeah, the pause piece is about resilience. Um, and one of the things that we do a lot of is work too hard, work long days. And we're always thinking that we'll catch up on that time later. But often people are exhausted at the end of the working day or the working week. Or, and, and so your leisure time feels like it's really about catching up. It's switching off. And so pausing is about recharging your energy. So during your day, if you can spend very, you know, small um, amounts of time, maybe five minutes, sometimes 10 minutes, having little breaks. What's really important is that we're able to turn off for five or 10 minutes at regular intervals during the day. Uh, and so the sorts of pauses that help to recharge energy are, you know, good conversations with nice people do that, uh, a bit of mindfulness, some breath, yoga breath, a few yoga poses, even putting your head down on the desk for five minutes can help to shift um, your energy pattern um, and to feel some sense of recharging. And closing at the end of the day is, is about making a hard end to your work day to set up a transition into non-work time. And so this is sort of called detachment. So things like having a ritual that says, this is the close of my day. It might be quite simple, like, putting your coffee cup away, closing the lid of the laptop, shutting, shutting down the computer, rearranging your desk to make it tidy, really super simple things that you do, but, but turning it into a ritual to say that this is my closing down ritual, this is my end of the day ritual, um, and then sticking with that, of course, not going back and turning those notifications off your phone so you're not just switching, you know, the equipment that you use to stay um, in work mode. Um, you are actually shifting out of it. Well, thank you very much, Karen. I have to admit, I have in the past been one of those go to meeting, 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 you know, always switched on, never have time to have lunch. Um, you know, that's exhausting. And the things that you've got in your book to help break those habits are just so useful so thank you very much thank you for sharing them with us and i'm really looking forward to sharing the book with our community 
to the flexibility, take five. One, know what matters. Reduce stresses, make sense of how you respond to things and manage your attention and thoughts. Two, do what matters. Structure and prioritise your work so you build autonomy, control and confidence with the work you're doing. Three, explore job crafting. Organise your work to play to your strengths, capabilities and passions. Four, stop the meeting madness. Question the purpose, focus and duration of all meetings. Five, pause and close each day. Pause regularly during the day and develop a ritual that closes every workday for you. I'm Anna Hughes and that's the Flexibility Books at Work episode done and dusted. Check out booksatwork.co.nz or books at work on Instagram for more useful bits from business books. 